let's take our Bibles, shall we? Open them again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, second gospel or second book of the New Testament. Uh, probably, Mark, probably the first of the gospels that was actually written, chronologically speaking. Matthew and Luke come later, and a little bit later, and then John uh, a fair bit later even than Mark. Mark probably writing... Uh, this gospel, this biography of Jesus, sometime in the mid-50s to maybe early 60s A.D., uh, one of the uh, uh, first biographies of, of Jesus. Mark chapter 6, this morning will be in the second half of verse 6 through verse uh, 30. In 1914, a British explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton was preparing a team for an Antarctic excursion. It's more than an excursion, it was an exploration. Shackleton and his team would travel to the South Pole, to Antarctica, or to Antarctica in search of, or in hopes of, making it to the South Pole. They left on a ship called the Endurance, uh, which was eventually lost at sea. The shipwreck of it has actually remarkably been found uh, and fairly well preserved in those cold Antarctic waters. Shackleton and his crew did make it home with relative safety, even losing their ship. Uh, but one of the greatest ex excursions, expeditions uh, that, uh, that, that, that uh, really humanity has, has put together. In 1914, it has been said that Ernest Shackleton took out an ad in the London Times before going on his expedition to recruit people to join his crew. His ad has been touted as one of the greatest examples of print marketing in Western history. This is the ad from 1914. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful. <laughs> Honor and recognition in event of success. Now the story of Ernest Shackleton's ad in the 1914 London Times is, uh, is somewhat apocryphal. We cannot find, historians cannot find print evidence uh, that this ad was ever taken out, but still the legend sort of lives on. And, and whether the ad was actually real or not, that's a pretty compelling advertisement. It tells you all the horrible things about the job. And then what good comes from it? Honor and recognition in event of success. You can imagine the hearts of adventurous men, even, even mildly, not even mildly, less than mildly adventurous men like me, have their hearts stirred by an ad like this. Like, ah, nah, I, I might die, but sounds fun. <laughs> it's a compelling call. How is it that a compelling call, that, that, that a call like that can be so compelling, even though it's almost promising death or disease or injury along the way? Well, because the end result, the reward, is something to be thought about, honor and recognition. Ernest Shackleton didn't promise wealth, he didn't promise uh, 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 worldwide fame, but that, he, that, that those who returned would be honored and recognized by their fellow countrymen, to be thought well of by others as someone who's brave, cor courageous, a great explorer, that's something. In Mark chapter 6, verse, the second half of verse 6 through verse 30, we see Jesus sending His disciples, the twelve, to expand His ministry. He sends them on an expedition to expand his ministry in ways that will, first of all, make them dependent upon God's provision, but also place them in potential grave danger by those who would resist and reject them. The main idea of the text and of the sermon this morning is this, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who sends his disciples on a dependent and dangerous mission with the gospel. Jesus calls his disciples 
to do something hard with little promise of great reward on the other end. As we see that how Jesus calls and what that call to his disciples ultimately means for them, as we'll see in the example of John the Baptist and how he meets his end, I hope this morning that we would be emboldened to follow Jesus' command, to fulfill his commission, knowing who it is that's called us and what he holds for those who endure with faithfulness. Jesus is the Messiah who sends his disciples on a dependent and dangerous mission with the gospel. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Mark 6, second half of verse 6 through verse 30. Mark writes, And he, Jesus, went about the, uh, among the villages teaching. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The king Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask, for, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus is the Messiah who sends his disciples on a dependent and dangerous mission with the gospel. Now, I want you to know that this morning, even without you knowing, you have received 40 minutes or so of your life back some Sunday morning. Actually, not back, but to spend on a whole other different sermon. Because I was initially going to preach these uh, 25 verses or so in two different sermons. Ah, but I've pushed them together. So, we have one less sermon in Mark in total, and we get time to spend on some other sermon along the way. You're welcome. But I've done that on purpose. 
Mark is doing his sandwich thing again in this, in this passage. It's a little bit different than how he's done it before. It's weighted a little bit differently, but we have this bracketing effect where on the front end, verses 7 through 13, Jesus is sending his disciples, and then in verse 30, the disciples come back. And then in the middle, we have this, uh, this episode that describes the fate of John the Baptist. And Mark does this on purpose. He, he brackets sections of Scripture. He has this interplay between uh, events in Jesus' life to call our attention to some greater, some, some, some overarching theme, some, some bigger thread that is pulling through all of it. And so we could look at the sending of the disciples by itself and the event with John by itself, and that would be fine. But I think the two events in juxtaposition, the way that Mark puts them, helps us to understand something even a little bit better. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah who not just sends his disciples, but he sends them on a mission that requires their dependence upon God and will put them in grave danger. Let's look first at the calling of the disciples versus 6 through 13, we see there that the Messiah's commission, Jesus' commission, requires of his disciples total dependence upon God. It requires total dependence upon God. First of all, dependence upon God for their ministry, for what they will do. Notice it is Christ himself, it is Jesus who commissions his disciples to go around the villages of Galilee. This is not the idea of the disciples. There was no motion made by Peter and a second by James and a unanimous vote of approval to do this thing. Hardly so. Instead, it's Jesus who called the twelve to himself and Jesus who now sends them out. He sends them out two by two, not in imitation of the many animals entering the ark, no, but he sends them out in pairs so that they might be a valid witness to what what they will proclaim. Two passages in particular in the Old Testament in the law, Deuteronomy 19 and Numbers 35, both indicate that in criminal cases among the people of God, that charges could only be brought on the testimony of two or three witnesses. One witness to a supposed murder was not enough to indict the individual uh, or convict the, 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 the alleged uh, murderer for murder. You had to have at least two or three people. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus applies the same principle of two or three witnesses to the matter of church discipline. When an unrepentant brother among the church or sister should be, uh, uh, is a, should be approached by two or three others so that their charge might be valid. So we're not wrongly uh, exercising church discipline in somebody's life. And so in the same way here in Mark 6, Jesus is not sending some representatives of the gospel here. He's sending a valid witness to the arrival of the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Notice too that Jesus gives the disciples authority. The word that Mark used as he wrote in Greek 2,000 years ago for authority, the word there is exousia. This This is power with prerogative, power with the right to use it. He gives them authority, exousia, over unclean spirits. We've already seen in Mark's gospel how Jesus, the Son of God, exercises authority over unclean spirits, casting them out. And he exercises authority over sickness. And he exercises authority, exousia, even in the way that he teaches as the synagogue in Capernaum in Mark 1 noticed. The Messiah's commission of the twelve is the Messiah's commission. It's not the disciples' commission, it's Jesus's. Sending them and the apostles, as they're called in verse 30, literally sent out ones. That's what that word apostle means. These apostles are entirely dependent on God's power through Christ for the ministry they will do. They don't have authority in themselves to cast out unclean spirits and to heal. They have authority given to them by Jesus. 
It's Jesus who calls them. It's Jesus who sends them. It's Jesus who gives them authority. They are passive recipients of this ministry call. Now, friends, God has made us creative creatures. And He calls us to use our creativity and our gifts in fulfillment of His commission uh, upon our lives. We use our creative gifts in administration and in science and in the arts and mathematics and as teachers and parents and bosses and managers. We use our creativity in lots of different ways to carry out the commission that God has given to us. And, and we even are creative in the ways that we try to get the gospel to people, doing things that maybe we didn't do in the past because we want to get the gospel to people who need to hear it. God has made us creative creatures and He has made us to be creative with the, with, uh, with the ways that we fulfill the commission that He's given to us. But God has not called us to get creative with our definition of what He's called us to do. We are entirely dependent upon God for our marching orders and the parameters of what we'll strive to do for His glory. This is why our mission statement here at First West may appear very plain and blasé to many. Our mission statement is this, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've heard it enough times, I hope most of you have memorized it by now. Why is this our mission statement and not something more dramatic like, We exist to change the world by unifying hearts and minds to heal the broken, lift the poor, bring peace on earth. Why isn't our our mission mission statement something like, we exist to change the world by calling men and women to courageous action and selfless service? Why not those things? Why this plain statement about glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit? Friends, because it's what we believe God has most plainly called us to do in His Word. And since He is God and we are not, And since it's His mission that we're seeking to fulfill, we don't feel we have the right to get creative with how God has defined His mission for His church in His Word. We are dependent upon Him for ministry, dependent upon His calling, dependent upon His sending, dependent upon His directing, and dependent upon His empowering. Jesus sends His disciples on a mission that depends upon God for their ministry, but also dependent upon God for their provision. You probably noticed the very meager way that Jesus sent his disciples out. They're supposed to take with them only a staff and the clothes on their back. No extra food, no extra bag, no extra money, no extra clothes. Why so meager? Why does Jesus send them out so seemingly unprepared? I believe there are two reasons for this. First, Jesus intends the apostles to be humble and to depend on God's provision for the journey. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was a significant cultural value. If a traveler needed lodging, it was the expectation that if you had the capacity to, you would be ready to open your home for that traveler to stay. In verse 10, Jesus tells them that whenever they enter a village or a town uh, and someone receives them, they're to stay in that home with that person until they move on to the next town. Jesus is teaching the disciples, these apostles, early on to rely on God's provision of lodging and food by those people who would receive the messengers who would receive their message and who would provide for their needs as they ministered in their town. Second, I believe Jesus is sending them out in a meager way to teach them something of the urgency of their mission. People who need to travel fast, travel light. Our our Frankfurt team is getting ready to travel to Frankfurt at the end of September and to Vienna as well. And I'm thinking about how can I take the fewest things possible I don't want to be that guy's dragging stuff through the airport, international airport, so the guy like loses his baggage uh, because he's just got too many things and the airline can't keep track of it or whatever the case may be. I'm trying to think like, how can I travel lightest so I can travel best because this is going to be an urgent message, mes- 
Mission, excuse me. Jesus does the same thing or is encouraging his disciples the same way. This is an urgent mission that requires haste, that requires the ability to move quickly. The message of the arrival of the kingdom of God and of his Christ must go quickly. It is an urgent message. There are only maybe a couple of short years between this moment in Mark 6 and Jesus, in Jesus' life and the moment that he will be crucified, as we read later in Mark's gospel. Only a couple years or so in between there. It is absolutely imperative that the disciples move quickly. And as they do, they depend on the provision of God through the kindness of others. But see here also how Jesus teaches the apostles about urgency by when and how they're supposed to leave a town. If in a place there's no one to receive them, to listen to them, provide hospitality to these messengers of the kingdom, they're to shake the dust off from their sandals as a way of saying, Jesus says as a testimony against them, as a way of saying, we've been faithful to our calling, to our mission here. You've not only rejected us, but also the Messiah we've come proclaiming. It was a practice of Jews 2,000 years ago when returning to the Holy Land from Gentile nations to shake the dust from out of their garments before entering into Israel. And by shaking the dust off of their sandals, when not received in a town, the apostles are declaring that the people in that place, though they may be ethnic Jews, are not among true believing Israel. They are like the heathen Gentiles and under the judgment of God until they repent. The urgency of the gospel requires us to go with it quickly and intentionally. Sadly, it is creaturely comforts often and a protection of a certain standard of living that regularly prevents us from bold urgency with the gospel. Christian, we need to repent of our love for those comforts which prevent us from boldness with the gospel. May I say that again? We need to repent of our love for creaturely comforts which prevent us from boldness with the gospel. I had a good friend in seminary who was a pastor before he was a seminary student. He did it, not, not necessarily backwards, but backwards from how many of us did. He was a pastor first, and then he went to seminary. And he told me once, or he told me on more than one occasion, as we talked regularly, he said, Stephen, when I was pastoring, I was not a very faithful pastor. Not because I got the gospel wrong, not because I disqualified myself, but because I pastored in a way that kept everyone happy so that I could pay my mortgage. I trusted my paycheck from the church more than I trusted God to provide. And because of that, I didn't call people to repent like I should have. I didn't challenge people's disobedience as I ought to have. I didn't say what needed to be said because I didn't want to lose my house. Brothers and sisters, I struggle the same way as my friend. Not always by saying what I think you want to hear, but sometimes by not saying what I think needs to be said so that I don't lose my job so that I still have a paycheck to pay my mortgage and put food on the table. Friends, this is a fault in me. And I need greater faith in God's provision as a leader to say what is right and faithful to say. You too, you need great faith in God's provision as you will live and speak for Christ with wisdom in sometimes hostile places. You too will need to depend upon God's provision when it, will cost, when it, when it comes to costing you something for following Jesus. Jesus sends his disciples on a mission that is dependent upon God for their ministry, for their provision, but also dependent upon God for their message. Verses 12 and 13 tell us what the disciples did. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out demons and they anointed the sick. These are verses that have an echo in Mark's gospel, don't they? Do you hear it? 
In Mark chapter 1, verses 38 and 39, we read this. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Friends, the disciples, having received the commission from Jesus and authority from Jesus for this mission, instruction for the journey from Jesus, these apostles now go and do what they saw Jesus do. They preach what they heard Jesus preach. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is, the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' message in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 or 15. And that, that's the same message of the disciples. They didn't create a new message, but they preached the same old gospel that they heard and believed. They cast out demons and anointed the sick as they saw Jesus do and as he instructed them to do. Let me tell you, nothing grinds my gears quite like plagiarism. Taking someone else's words and presenting them as your own. That is a thing offensive to me without proper attribution. You can take somebody's words and you can say them word for word. Just footnote it or reference it in the way that you speak it. Right? That's, that's not plagiarism. That's just maybe good scholarship. Drives me crazy when people, and I, I grade papers sometimes for the, the seminary that I went to on occasion, and it will drive me nuts if I think that someone has plagiarized or improperly cited something. But can I tell you where using someone else's words is always appropriate? When you use Jesus' words to proclaim the gospel to somebody else. When you repeat the message of the king without creative flourish and embellishment, but plainly and clearly saying, Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior who lived a righteous life in my place, who died for sins in my place and was raised from the dead so that everyone who repents of sin and believes the good news that Christ is risen might be saved and reconciled to God. Friends, we don't need to get creative with the gospel. If you need to plagiarize anything, plagiarize Jesus' words, God's words from his scripture about the good news that Jesus saves. Jesus sends his disciples in a way that's dependent upon uh, God for their ministry, uh, dependent upon God for their provision, and dependent upon God for even the message that they proclaim. The Messiah's commission calls for utter dependence and total trust without creativity as to the message nor to seek ministry as a means of gaining wealth, but simply to be repeaters of Christ's own good news. The Messiah commissions his disciples in a dependent way. But also we see in what follows in much of the rest of this passage that the Messiah's commission brings derision, resistance, rejection from enemies. His commission is also a dangerous one. It's interesting that as disciples go out and do what Christ commanded them to do, that word starts to get around and get the attention of important and powerful people. The reputation of Jesus through the disciples is spreading because of their dependence upon God in their ministry, such that word reaches even the governor of Galilee, Herod Antipas. Now Mark, in verse 14, calls Herod king, but Herod wasn't really a king. And this may be, even by Mark, a subtle dig, uh, an ironic title given to Herod, meant to point out the prideful assumptions and aspirations that Herod Antipas had. But news eventually gets to Antipas of Jesus' reputation, and immediately everyone around Herod begins asking who this Jesus is. Herod Antipas' conclusion is that he must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now hang on a second. When did John die? Mark hasn't told us yet, but now he has occasion to. This conclusion from Herod uh, that, Mark has been that John has been raised from the dead sends Mark off now on a, a bit of a diversion, kind of a parenthesis, 
to explain what happened to John the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, and how he came to be beheaded. But in doing so, John also becomes, John the Baptist becomes a picture of those who align themselves with Jesus and who follow his commission. You see, Herod Antipas had fallen into a love affair with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, such that Herod divorced his own wife to marry his sister-in-law. John the Baptist, knowing this and being a bit of a firebrand himself, called Herod to account for his sin of incestuous adultery. It is not right to have your brother's wife, he said. Herodias, the new wife of Herod, we find is a bit of a social climber. She knows that Herod is conflicted by John. She's married to Herod Antipas. She divorced Herod's brother Philip to marry Herod Antipas so that she could climb the ladder of success and power in this, uh, in this Judean or Galilean sort of system and maybe even in the Roman system. She saw Herod Antipas as maybe her route to being queen one day. But Herod is conflicted by John. Mark tells us that every time Herod listened to John, he was perplexed, he was confused, but also he heard him gladly. Like John is convicting Herod of sin and Herod is going, I, I am convicted of sin, but I don't want to turn from it, but I really like you preaching to me, so I'll just keep you around for a while. Herod's a weird dude. John is a problem for Herodias the wife of Herod. You see, because she married Herod, seeing that he was a, a quicker route to power and success and influence than Philip. But if Herod listens to John, as Herod likes to listen to John, Herod might actually hear what he's saying and repent of the sin that he is currently in. And then that's the end for Herodias' dreams of power. So Herodias, this woman, has it out for John. Herod is a conflicted man. His love for sin has prevented him from listening to John the baptizer. But man, does he ever find John interesting to listen to. So to appease his wife, he has John arrested, put in prison, but not silenced, not yet. Meanwhile, Herodias, who bears a striking resemblance in her character to the Old Testament queen Jezebel, is stewing in a rage and biding her time to exact her vengeance against John. On one of Herod Antipas' birthdays, he threw a riotous, drunken party for all of the nobles and military leaders in Galilee. And in the middle of their drunken party, Herodias sends her probably teenage daughter into dance for Herod and his guests in a way that, that Mark says rather nicely, but we should understand to be as a rather lewd and provocative way. And so overcome with lustful delight at his stepdaughter's dance, Herod promises to give her anything she wants even up to half of his kingdom, which by the way, Herod's not a king, so he doesn't even have a kingdom to give away half of, but whatever. So the girl goes and confers with her mother, as it seems the whole thing was planned from the beginning, and she comes back asking Herod for John the baptizer's head on a plate. And Herod finds himself in such a position that he cannot refuse this request, lest he lose face in front of everybody. And so John is tragically executed. Here's the point. John found himself, John the baptizer found himself despised by Herod and Herodias because John had the audacity to call them to repentance from sin. The very thing that Jesus and his disciples were doing. The very message that gained John a following of faithful Jews and whom John then sent later on to follow Jesus. The commission to proclaim repentance of sin and faith in Jesus alone is a commission that will set those who bring the message against powerful people who love their sin. That's what Mark's telling us here. Jesus calls his disciples, but he sends them into a dangerous, 
a dangerous world. So here's a reminder. First of all, that the cost of following Jesus is high. The cost of following Jesus is high. It cost John his head. It cost many of the disciples their lives as martyrs. Even our Messiah himself was not without enemies as he was falsely accused and wrongly convicted of crimes he did not commit and unjustly put to death on a criminal's cross. Friend, count the cost of discipleship. A martyr's death may not await each of us, no, but we may face suffering of loss of a job, conflict among co-workers, marginalization by society, insults, assaults and abuses, all for faithfulness to Christ and bold witness to His kingdom. Count the cost of discipleship. And here's a warning to those who may not yet be following Jesus. Beware the allure of sin and what it will require of you. In Herod's case, his incestuous lust led to an adulterous marriage, and his love for debauchery led to a drunken party, and the combination of his lust and debauchery and pride and power led him to make a promise that he didn't intend to make, and in carrying it out the execution of John, he seared his conscience against whatever remaining influence the gospel may have been having in his life. Beware the allure of sin. Friend, know this, that sin may be all fun and games today. But as it's been said eloquently by others, sin will always take you farther than you're willing to go, keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. Learn from the negative example of Herod. Repent of sin today and fall on Christ for forgiveness. The Messiah's commission is one that requires dependence upon God. It's one that brings derision and rejection and and opposition from enemies to the gospel. But finally, the Messiah's commission has great reward for the faithful. Great reward for the faithful. The allure of Ernest Shackleton's apocryphal advertisement is found in its promise of reward, honor, and recognition in event of success. To be known with honor, to be recognized as courageous and noble by others, that is, that is something. The kind of thing that will lead men to brave the harshest, harshest of conditions and the most uncertain of ends. Verse 30 tells us that after the apostles went out to the villages... They returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. It's interesting to note here that the apostles do not receive honor and recognition by others on their return. There's no welcoming party ready to hoist them on their shoulders as they come back toward Jesus. They're simply reporting back to the one who has authority over them and to the one that they seek to obey. And knowing and seeing all the adversity that John faced and that Jesus would face and that the disciples and believers in the early church faced, some may be tempted to ask, why would anyone risk their lives for a message like this? Who in their right mind would come under the authority of Jesus to go out into a dangerous world to proclaim a message of repentance of sins and faith in Jesus who died for sins and rose from the dead if all it's going to get you are enemies? That's not a good way to win friends and influence people, is it? If you want to believe Jesus, that's fine, but for goodness sake, there's nothing to gain by trying to proselytize others, some may say. That's a good question, friends, and it's a worthy one. Why would anybody do this knowing that the world will not love you for it? We should ask the question, why would I put my life and my livelihood at risk by following Jesus and calling others to repent of sin and believe in Him? I offer you two reasons why it's worth it. Number one, first, because we believe Jesus really rose from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, as he said he would, and then fulfilled, and this, is the, this has been the claim of Christianity, the belief of Christians for 2,000 years, if Jesus 
prophesied that he would be crucified and raised from the dead, and then he was crucified and raised from the dead, then friends, he is who he says he is. Messiah, King, Lord, Savior, Son of God. We endure risk for this commission because Jesus is alive and because he is God. Second, because Jesus is alive, we believe his promises. Specifically, we believe the promise of the reward of heaven and the recognition that comes from our loving King saying, well done, good and faithful servant. When faithfulness to Christ is difficult, we remind ourselves of the joy of being known as faithful servants who emulate their King. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ, for the joy of being the Savior of sinners, endured the cross. We who love Him, we look forward to the great reward for faithfulness, not a reward of wealth, not a reward of power or worldly recognition even, but the reward of hearing from Jesus as He says in His parable in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. The Messiah commissions His disciples to a task that has great reward for faithfulness, recognition by the King. The call to follow Jesus is a call to dependence, being entirely dependent on God and His provision for what we need. Dependence first for our salvation from sin as we repent of it and trust Jesus. Dependence upon God to shape our mission and to empower us for it. It's a call to being despised by the powerful, by the hateful, by the prideful. These are results that when they come, we don't don't go seeking to be hated by the world, but knowing that it will happen because Jesus had said so, we greet these, the hatred of the world, the despisement of the world, we greet it with expectation and continued faith when it comes. The call to follow Jesus is a call that results in great reward for those who endure till the end, recognition and honor from the only person who really matters, our King Himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Ernest Shackleton wrote an ad, apocryphally, encouraging people to join his crew. If I could write an ad encouraging people to follow Jesus, in the likeness of Ernest Shackleton's, I might say something like this. Men and women wanted for a glorious journey. No pay. Death to sin and self-required. Resistance and rejection likely. Recognition in life from the King of glory to all who endure by faith. Would you answer that ad? Would you follow Jesus that way? Friends, my invitation to you, if you don't know Jesus yet, but you're all in on this journey of faith and following Jesus, knowing all that it comes with, and all all, all that comes with it, and all that comes with being recognized by Jesus the King as being a good and faithful servant who endured and proclaiming the gospel forever. If you want your life to be changed by Him so you can follow Him on this grand journey, I invite you this morning, after our worship service is over, come and talk with me. Let's talk about how you can have assurance of the forgiveness of your sins and being justified to God through faith in Jesus. Let's follow Him together this way. I invite you, come with me. Let's pray.